Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 118, Biopsy and Beyond with the Breast Expert. And today's podcast episode is actually the audio recording of an Instagram Live we did last week. And on this conversation, you will hear from all members of the a breast care team. We have breast radiology, Dr. Robin Roth. We have breast surgery, Dr. Javita Oruwari, myself, a breast medical oncologist, radiation oncology, Dr. Amanda Rivera, and plastic surgery, Dr. Divya Srinivasa, was actually on the podcast just a few episodes ago, talking a lot about flaps and plastic surgery in general. And in this conversation, we kind of go over everything. We talk a little bit about what each of us do, what we think is important for people to know about our particular roles. And we do a lot of Q&A. And obviously, we couldn't cover everything in this episode, but we've gotten a lot of wonderful feedback that it was helpful and gave people some information, a glimpse of how everything kind of comes together. And so if it's easier for you to listen rather than watch the video, here it is for you. And with that, let's get right into it. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Hi, everyone. We'll just start by doing some introductions, and then uh, I think, again, that we can only have four people instead of five will uh, just swaps it. So, um, Robin, start. we'll kind of go in the order of how you would encounter all of us on a breast cancer journey, so to speak. Hi, so I'm Dr. Robin Roth, and I am the radiologist of the group. And you probably, well, a lot of people don't usually meet the radiologist, but in breast imaging, when you get called back or get diagnosed, you know, as part of the, the, the breast cancer diagnosis, you're probably going to meet a radiologist because we're the doctor who is interpreting your mammogram, your ultrasound and MRI, and then we're also doing the biopsies, which we're gonna talk a little bit about what to expect for that. Perfect. Um, so after someone has a biopsy, let's say it's abnormal, and we'll get, get into all of that. The next person they go to is the breast surgeon. Um, so Jovita Oravari is an amazing breast surgeon. She's gonna hop on a little bit later, um, and we'll kind of, again, swap out, but she'll be joining us and she should be kind of in the chat and taking a look at some of the comments. After breast surgery, the next place, uh, the next person typically is medical oncology. So that's me. I'm Dr. Eleanor Toplinski. I'm a medical oncologist. I really specialize in breast and gynecologic cancers. And hi, um, so nice to see so many people on. And um, so we'll talk about some of the things that I do and it's a big changes and advances in treatment in the last few years. After medical oncology, our next stop is going to be radiation oncology. And so that's Amanda here. Hi guys, so I'm Dr. Amanda Rivera. Um, as um, Eleanor said, I'm a radiation oncologist and I actually specialize in both gynecologic and breast cancers. Um, so the radiation oncologist is really the doctor you should be speaking to about what are, whether or not you need radiation following your surgery. Um, we'll talk a little bit about you know whether or not you even need radiation, um, and that depends on a couple of different factors. Um, and one thing I want you guys to remember is that radiation is not necessarily one size fits all. It's changed a lot um, in its long history, um, and we'll we'll have a chance to kind of go over those uh, characteristics. And then, so this isn't really last because plastic surgery kind of is part, I think, from the beginning and then at the end. So last but not least um, is Divya. Hi, guys. I'm Dr. Divya Srinivasa, and I am a breast reconstructive plastic surgeon. And um, as Elnora said, we, as plastic surgeons, really insert ourselves whenever and wherever is appropriate, working with all of your other doctors on the team. We never want to get in the way with, of what they do because they are treating your cancer, but we want to make sure you come out of it feeling as 
wonderful as you possibly can. So I always say I'm a quality of life surgeon. And so I can't wait to talk to you guys about all the different ways that plastic surgery can get involved at different parts of your breast cancer journey. Awesome. So what we kind of thought we would do is we will each walk you through kind of two to three points that we want you to know. You know, if someone said to me, hey, what are three things you want, you know, anyone to know? So we'll kind of each do that and then we'll do a Q&A. Um, and, you know, we'll be taking a look at the questions in the chat. Um, but if you could leave them kind of in the question box, I think it makes it easier for us to see them and to answer them. So, Robin, um, mm -hmm. so why don't you go first and t tell us all about breast imaging and biopsies? Yeah. So, I mean, chances are you probably have, had, if you're listening, you've got diagnosed with breast cancer, you probably had some normal imaging during your course. Um, but let's say that it was cough off a screening mammogram. So a screening mammogram, we would call you back. We'd give you something called a BIRAD zero. Um, and when you hear the term BIRADS, that means breast imaging reporting and data system. And it's really a code that the radiologist gives a, to give our level of concern. So if you get a BIRAD zero, it just means we need more information. It's really too early to, you know, panic, but you know, then if you, then you'll come back for a diagnostic mammogram and ultrasound probably and meet with a radiologist at that point. So at that point, the radiologist will bring you back and get extra pictures as they need. They might get magnification views if they see calcifications um, or compression. And ultimately, they'll likely get an ultrasound. And then at the end of that, they're going to give you the recommendations. Um, and there's a few possibilities, you know, when you come in for that diagnostic mammogram. 10% um, of women get called back. And of those 10% that do get called back, of the women that come back for their, for their um, diagnostic mammogram, um, I think it's 60% 60, 60 of them will be told it's fine, 20% will be told it's probably benign, and another 20% will need biopsies. Um, and the biopsy category can either look like a BIRADS4 or BIRADS5, and there's a big difference there. So BIRADS4, the rate of malignancy means it ranges anywhere from two to 95%, so it's a very wide range. But a BIRADS-5 is highly suspicious. That means if you get that biopsy, the radiologist is very concerned based on their imaging that it's probably cancer. And if it doesn't come back as cancer, we're probably gonna recommend excision anyways, just because of the imaging appearance is so suspicious. So th those are the two basic outcomes um, if you do get a biopsy recommendation. And I'm gonna just talk a little bit of an overview of biopsies because it really depends on which modality you're gonna have it under but we can do biopsies under mammogram and ultrasound and MRI. And basically the radiologist, and we do it however we see the abnormality best. Um, MRI I'd say is like the least, least favorable one to do. It's probably the hardest to tolerate, but we're kind of tied there because we saw it on MRI and we don't have another correlate. So the way that imaging guided biopsy works is you'll, the radiologist, you're awake the whole time. The radiologist gives you numbing medicine through the skin which burns for a few seconds, and then it should feel like pressure. I always tell people it should feel like pressure, but not painful. If you're feeling pain, ask for more numbing medicine. You shouldn't be shy to do that. Um, and you should work with a radiologist to make sure that your pain is manageable. And then we take a few samples and send it to the lab. And we always, it's pretty much standard of care to place a clip at where you do the biopsy in case it does come back as malignancy and needs to be taken out it serves as a marker. And oftentimes women will go on to get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which um, Dr. Taplinsky will talk about. And we need some kind of marker where the tumor was. So that's really the purpose for, um, for putting a clip in there. Um, we'll often do biopsies of breast and the lymph node as well, especially if morphologically it looks abnormal. And that's really as part of a staging, you know, we're trying to figure out is it confined to the breast is it confined to the lymph nodes? That's often the first stop. Just because it's in the lymph node doesn't mean it's gone anywhere else. Um, so that's important. And then, yeah, I think I'll stop there. Robin, I just have one question for you because I think this does come up a lot. So many yeah. have, um, you know, after diagnosis, they'll go for their first follow-up after a lumpectomy and they'll yeah. have a three. And that's a very kind of, you know, we call that probably benign, but I think it's mm -hmm. really very finding for people. So can you just kind of very quickly yeah. tell what that is? Sure. So probably benign is like really 99, it's 98% benign. And so like the radiologist is saying, I'm not worried about it. I just want to keep a close eye on you. A lot of times it's standard, 
it's institutional dependent, but a lot of places will follow their lumpectomy patients kind of every six months for a little bit just to kind of give them an extra, you know, we can get mammogram, we can get compression pictures, we can get ultrasound, especially after a lumpectomy. I think that the, the architecture of the breast is definitely different. So it does take a little bit of time for the breast to heal and for us to kind of look like. Um, so if you get a BIRADS 3 or probably benign, we're saying it's 98% chance that this is normal. Um, if we were worried about it, we would definitely do a biopsy. So that hopefully should reassure you, but I understand it's a scary place to be. Thank you. Robin, do you want to pop off and we'll get Jovita on? Sure. I'm going to work the comments, so I'll see you guys in a little bit. I've been answering a couple in the meantime. Okay. Sorry awesome. if it looks like an earthquake when I hold the phone. <laughs> You guys are doing great. All right, let's get Jovita on. Uh, hold on one second. Really, Instagram should allow more than four people on a live. Yeah. Uh, one second. Let's see if it works. There she is. Hey, hi friends. How you doing? Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, if you're listening. So I am Jovito Ruweri. I'm a breast surgeon in St. Louis, um, general surgery trained and uh, breast surgery fellowship trained. Um, the next person in line that patients would see after having a diagnosis of breast cancer. So most of my patients come to me either because they've had a mammogram and the mammogram is abnormal, uh, in which case we send them to the radiologist to get image-guided biopsy. That's what we prefer over doing a surgical biopsy. That's a whole other issue. But uh, image-guided biopsies are preferable. Uh, patients may also come to me uh, just because they felt something uh, in which case we'll get imaging and then we'll decide whether they needed uh, image-guided biopsy or uh, a different type of biopsy. And once we make that diagnosis that it is a breast cancer, then we sit down and we have a long discussion. And the way I conduct my cancer talks is that we kind of start from the beginning where I explain to my patients what what it means, you know, what does your pathology mean? What does it mean when we say you have ductal invasive breast cancer, when it says you have duct, um, lobular invasive breast cancer, or what is it when you have uh, in situ cancer? And the difference for people listening that may not know is that um, we have cells in the breast that are of ductal origin and we have cells that are of lobular origin, which is the milk sacs. So you can have uh, breast cancer develop in either of those two places. And then uh, furthermore, it can be invasive or in situ. In situ meaning that it's contained and invasive meaning that it has a potential to travel. It doesn't mean that it has traveled. It just means that it has a potential to travel. So we kind of get all of the definitions out of the way. And then we start to talk about what are the options for surgery. The options are basically, it's only two options, unfortunately, for surgery. We can either do what's called a lumpectomy, meaning that we're going to take the lump out and make sure we get it out and have a good amount of normal tissue surrounding it. So we call that negative margins. Or we do a mastectomy. When we do a lumpectomy, we typically will follow it up with radiation, which you'll hear all about later on. Um, but we know based on data that we have that if a woman who's a candidate for uh, a lumpectomy has a lumpectomy and we follow it up with radiation, uh, this, the cure and survival is going to be similar to having a mastectomy. So we actually have choices today where women didn't have choices years ago. So it's important to me to present that fact to my patients so that they know that they have the option. Given the option, some women opt for the lumpectomy, some women opt for a mastectomy. And at the end of the day, it's the patient's choice. There are some patients that are not good candidates for a lumpectomy. And those are typically, uh, in my ward, people that cannot do radiation. 
either because I'm actually not going to go over that because you might talk about that when you talk about radiation. But there's uh, several reasons why someone might not be able to have radiation. Uh, in which case, if we can't follow the lumpectomy with radiation, then they're going to be better candidates for a mastectomy. Um, other reasons somebody might need to have a mastectomy is if the cancer is so large that if I did a lumpectomy, I'm going to need to take so much breast tissue. Although sometimes Dr. Teplinski will come in and shrink the tumor so that those patients will be a better candidate for the lumpectomy. And then um, there's some women that come in that's like three, four different areas in the breast, what we call multifocal, multicentric breast cancer. In that case, it's hard to start picking little bits and pieces of lumps. It's just much safer to go ahead and take the whole breast. So those are reasons why I would do a mastectomy. And the other final reason is because someone has the breast cancer gene. We've tested them and they have one of the genes that would increase your risk of breast cancer. And there are various genes. The most famous is the BRCA genes, which everybody knows about, but there's some less famous genes. Some of them are low-risk genes. Some of them are high-risk genes. And based on the risk level that we talk about, is it, um, does it make more sense to go ahead and do the mastectomy just because of the risk of it coming back, not only in that breast, but also developing another cancer in the, in the opposite breast? So that is the, that is the options for surgery then when someone has an in-situ breast cancer, which is contained, those do not typically have a risk of going elsewhere. So we don't have to worry about lymph nodes for someone with in-situ cancer. But if somebody has an invasive breast cancer because those, those have broken through the boundary, those have a potential to travel. So uh, we owe it to the patient to check their lymph nodes. So the way we do it is called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And it's a surgical procedure, uh, which we do at the time of the lumpectomy or at the time of the mastectomy. And we do it using dyes or tracers that lead us to the particular lymph node that the cancer would go to. So we're able to identify those lymph nodes and take them out. Uh, a typical sentinel lymph node biopsy will take maybe one, two, three, four, five lymph nodes, hopefully not more than that. And the benefit and beauty of doing the sentinel lymph node biopsy is that it has really allowed us to not do what we call a node dissection, which is what we used to do a lot in the past, meaning that we remove all of the lymph nodes under the armpit. And back then, we'll take out 20, 30 lymph nodes from a woman and there's no cancer in any one of them. So the whole introduction of the sentinel lymph node biopsy for us surgeons pretty much revolutionized the way we did things. So if we're able to remove fewer lymph nodes, uh, we decrease the risk that a woman would get lymphedema because lymphedema, which is a swelling of the arm, some of you might know about that, is something that develops because the lymph nodes are gone and we've... Um, we've changed the whole drainage pattern of the arm. So the fluid has nowhere to go essentially. And it causes swelling of the arm, which subsequently can lead to infections. And it's just a huge problem for women that have all of their nodes removed. So the less nodes we take out, the better. And that's why we do the sentinel lymph node biopsy. So um, I think that is it as far as surgical options. And then for women who end up with a mastectomy, they do have options of breast reconstructions, which will be discussed in a little bit as far as the options they have for breast reconstruction. Um, Surgery-wise, doing the doing what we call breast conservation or the lumpectomy um, is just pretty popular today because you know that it allows a woman to keep her breast. And um, again, the cure rate of survival is Zimazuna mastectomy. For women who opt for the mastectomy, again, by choice, they have the option of doing a, a breast reconstruction. And I really have never had anyone regret having a mastectomy. Um, I've had a few women regret having a lumpectomy. But again, ultimately, it's a person's choice to do that. And I've had some women have a lumpectomy and then a few years later, make the decision to have uh, a mastectomy. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. Everybody has to do what's right for them. 
uh, so long as, you know, it's all within guidelines of uh, treatment. Okay. Is there anything surgically that I forgot to mention there? I think no, I, I, think, I think that's good. That was great. Thank you. So I guess I'll go next. Um, you know, so I'm a medical oncologist. So usually, you know, we, you see the radiologist, you get diagnosed, you see the breast surgeon. And the way that I, I'm going to tell you my whole consult that I do in over an hour, I'm going to boil it down to five minutes here. So when we talk about what I do, we kind of think about treating breast cancer in two ways. So first, first part I always think about, our first goal is to get rid of the cancer. So sometimes we're going to do that first with surgery, um, or sometimes people are going to come see me first to talk about chemotherapy, or sometimes in the older population, uh, endocrine therapy to try to shrink the cancer before surgery. And then once we get the cancer out, then we want to keep it from coming back. And so we want to do things to reduce our risk of recurrence. So it's important that we can't eliminate a risk of recurrence, but we can do things to lower our risk. And the modalities that we shrink the cancer, reduce the risk of recurrence include chemotherapy, uh, endocrine therapy, which is your tamoxifen, your aromatase inhibitors, immunotherapy for triple negative breast cancers, anti-HER2 therapy for our HER2 positive breast cancers. And, you know, I can talk for an hour on each, each subtype, um, but the treatment that everyone gets is very individualized and it's based on many factors. And the factors that it's based on are the tumor size, how many lymph nodes are involved, the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 receptor status, the grade of the cancer, um, you know, how has it spread, how advanced is it in the breast and in the lymph nodes, you know, even the number of lymph nodes makes a difference. So, you know, when it's hard, sometimes people you know, we'll say, okay, I'm just getting chemo, but it's so nuanced. Um, I will say just a couple of points very quickly to touch on two big things that have changed in how we approach treatment. Um, so for HER2 positive cancers, you know, the big thing is obviously going to be chemotherapy with anti-HER2 therapy. And I'm not talking about metastatic disease right now, um, but we could certainly do that in the Q&A. And what we've been trying to do with HER2 disease is give less chemo. Um, and sometimes even we don't need both Herceptin and Progetta. So we're trying to de-escalate treatment when we can um, to spare people toxicities. For triple negative breast cancer, we've actually gone the other way and we're adding treatment. Um, so we've been, we're adding not only Keytruda, which is immunotherapy, but we're also adding a, another chemotherapy called Carboplatin. So we were de-escalating when we where we can and escalating where we have to. Um, in estrogen receptor positive breast cancers, we use Oncotype to help determine whether chemotherapy is needed or not. And the big change there is that in the premenopausal population, data has shown that if you're lymph node positive, that even if you have a low Oncotype, we're really still going to be giving chemotherapy. Um, so the advances have come very, very quickly, very, very rapidly. Um, we've also had changes in kind of that maintenance therapy after someone is done to reduce the risk of recurrence with addition of drugs such as Virzinia or Bemacyclib, Olaparib if you have a BRCA mutation. Um, and so my advice for anyone is when you're meeting with a medical oncologist is, you know, really approach it systematically. Um, and don't be afraid to ask the questions, you know, say, I've heard about this drug. Is this right for me? Is it not right for me? Because it is a very complicated treatment. Um, I think I'll stop there because I can, I can go on for a long time. Um, but just thinking about it as re removing the cancer and then reducing the risk of recurrence. Um, and then after, um, the last thing I'll say is that if we are doing chemo, we want to do chemotherapy before radiation. And then after chemo, we send you over to radiation oncology. So Amanda, do you want to take it away there? Awesome. So um, like we said at the beginning, I am a radiation oncologist. Um, and typically, uh, you meet with the radiation oncologist after surgery. Um, but something that I want people to know is that a lot of institutions have these tumor board conferences. So we'll ask, um, all of these specialties meet um, at the beginning of, of your diagnosis in a um, kind of well put together forum where we have radiologists, we have radiation oncologists, we have surgeons, we have the medical oncology team, pathology, um, and, and sometimes plastic surgery. Um, and so we do have a chance to kind of like all talk together um, and you know decide on what treatment is best, even though you may not be meeting certain people until um, different time points in your treatment course. 
Um, so from the radiation standpoint, I want to talk about, I guess, three things. Um, the first being, do you even need radiation? Second will be, what type of radiation do you need or what are the options? And then the third are the side effects of radiation. Um, so kind of what I alluded to before, radiation is no longer this kind of one-size-fits-all um, you know, treatment paradigm. Um, we can actually um, elect to give radiation or not give radiation. And historically, the reason that we give radiation after a lumpectomy or the smaller surgery where you don't remove the whole breast is because um, it's been shown to decrease um, local recurrence in the breast as well as breast cancer mortality. And the outcomes are equivalent to if you had your whole breast taken off. So that's the, the kind of paradigm that uh, we were talking about before. Some women have really low risk breast cancers and may not even require radiation. And as our studies get kind of better and better and we you know, find out more through research, um, you know, we're seeing that certain cancers you know, may do uh, well enough without radiation that you don't need it. Um, this is only in the case of very small early stage breast cancers and the things that you should kind of keep in mind that um, Dr. Teplinski actually pointed out when she's talking about systemic therapies are similar for radiation oncologists. Um, things like the tumor histology, whether it's invasive ductal, lobular, um, the size of the tumor, the grade of the tumor, the margins at the time of surgery, so how much you know, area was there around the tumor that, that they were able to get out lymph node involvement, um, the age of the patient is very important, hormone receptor status. Um, these are all the things that we're using to kind of uh, deduce whether we think somebody has a low risk cancer and may not need radiation or you know, definitely needs radiation to bring that risk of recurrence down. Um, secondly, what type of radiation do you need? Um, so historically, uh, we used to give about five to six weeks of radiation treatment, and that used to be the only option. But as you know, we've learned more and run clinical trials, um, we've kind of shortened that down for the average breast cancer patient. Um, most radiation oncologists in the U.S. are doing 15 to 16 treatments of daily radiation, um, and that may be followed by a boost, which is just to the tumor cavity plus a small margin. Um, we're getting more data um, out, um, and actually kind of in Europe, they're moving more towards a five fraction or a five treatment uh, regimen. And some centers here are actually starting to adapt that regimen as well. Um, things that you know, we kind of consider have to do with the tumor characteristics again, um, in terms of what you know, regimen or fractionation is best for you. Um, we know that the 16 treatment approach versus um, the 25 or 28 treatment approach um, has equivalent outcomes in terms of cancer control and actually has good rates of um, cosmesis or um, toxicity. Um, so that's kind of the most common regimen right now, but in certain situations we might offer even just five treatments of radiation. Um, in certain situations, we need to do a longer course of radiation, um, historically, like post-mastectomy, um, because there were concerns that the studies run in the shorter courses of radiation, the 15 to 16 treatments, um, were not on patients that have had mastectomies. But now data is emerging that it actually is safe to do that 16 regimen treatment in certain patients who have had mastectomy. Um, so these are things that you should discuss with your radiation oncologist and ask about, and you might you know, find out that you're eligible for shorter courses of radiation treatment. Um, the other thing I wanna mention is that radiation historically was done to the whole breast um, and even parts of the axilla targeting the lymph nodes um, and sometimes the lymph nodes in the neck and the center of the chest, depending on you know, how aggressive the breast cancer is and how um, locally advanced or involvement of lymph nodes um, occurred. Um, now we have treatment approaches where we can actually just target partial breast, um, it's called partial breast radiation, where we just target the lumpectomy cavity plus a margin around it. Um, again, for that type of treatment, um, generally you have to be a low uh, risk candidate and it has to do again with those same tumor characteristics that, that we've been talking about this whole time. Um, so finally, the main side effects of radiation treatment, um, probably the most common one you've seen and heard about is the skin dermatitis or the skin reddening or darkening during treatment. 
Um, this can range just from, you know, the skin getting red or dark up into having itchiness, burning, and the skin opening up. Typically, we see these changes happen in the second week of radiation, and then they progress because each day you come for radiation, the dose is building. Um, so the side effects generally get worse before they're going to get better. Um, and you should actually see your radiation oncologist once a week while you're getting the treatment um, for something called an on-treatment visit to actually check your skin so that we can help you manage that side effect. Um, Um, and that's usually sufficient, but other times if um, So for the itching or the burning, we might try a steroid cream. If the skin is actually open, we move to kind of like a radiation uh, or a burn cream called Silvadine to really help protect that area of the skin and prevent infection. Um, so those are uh, kind of the main side effects during treatment. You may also experience fatigue or tiredness. Um, we usually tell patients it feels like you need to take an extra nap during the daytime, but it shouldn't be that you're bed bound all day. Um, that's mainly for acute side effects. Things that we think about in terms of long-term side effects for radiation um, have to do with scar tissue or fibrosis. So the area can feel um, slightly tougher or more rigid than it did prior to the radiation long-term. Um, you may also have an increased risk for lymphedema if you had a mastectomy or an axillary lymph node dissection. Adding the radiation onto that may increase the risk that you have swelling in the arm. Um, and then things that we think about have to do with what's close by. So the heart and the lungs sit directly behind the chest wall where we're radiating. Um, and we typically worry more on left-sided breast cancers with radiation, and we've come up with techniques over the years to spare the heart much better. Things such as deep inspiration breath hold. This is a technique where you hold your breath while the radiation beam is on, and you actually get separation away from the chest wall. The heart moves typically back and down. Um, so it gives us more sparing, um, a chance to spare the heart. Um, so left-sided because your heart sits on the left side of your chest. In right-sided breast cancers, we're not so worried about it, but we're actually looking on your CAT scan and that's how we plan the radiation. So we can actually see all these structures and control the doses going to both the heart, the lungs, and the breast. Um, so I'll stop there and pass it along. All right, so now I guess we'll go to plastic, uh, yeah, plastic reconstructive surgery, take it away. Hi guys, so I'm a double board certified plastic surgeon. I'm also trained in general surgery and I'm also a microsurgeon by training. Um, and I exclusively practice breast reconstruction. And breast reconstruction, as I had mentioned before, can really insert itself anywhere along your journey, um, depending on what you're having done and what your goals are. So if you are going to have a lumpectomy and if you have droopy breasts or breasts, a plastic surgeon can work with your breast surgeon at the time of lumpectomy to lift the breast or lift and reduce the breast to get you a better aesthetic outcome and hopefully prevent craters or divots that may come with radiation. Radiation is still going to happen and radiation is still going to change the way the radiated breast looks compared to the non-radiated breast. But I do think from a quality of life perspective, women who have always wanted a breast reduction or always wanted a breast lift can find the silver lining in those options when done along with the breast surgeon to do a lumpectomy. The one risk there, though, is if you have positive margins, meaning that there's parts of the cavity that maybe have some tumor cells left behind, it does complicate follow-up treatment. So make sure you talk to both your surgeons about what the plan would be if that happened. And also expect radiation on the back end after you have your lift and reduction um, to the breast that had the cancer in it. If you have smaller breasts or you didn't want to do the lift and radiation, but say you did get the lumpectomy and you're left with a bit of a, a divot or an indented scar, um, a crater, what can you do after radiation? The most common approach plastic surgeons use is fat grafting, where we do liposuction and we inject that fat back into the breast. It's so-so on the results. The problem is radiation is great for killing cancer, but it really changes the nature of the tissue um, and the fibrosis that we were just talking about. So the environment is not optimal to accept fat injections, but it can be used for mild to moderate improvement. Um, so really it's 
just taking good care of your skin, massaging the area, and having a conversation with your breast surgeon and plastic surgeon up front on what to expect with your lumpectomy. Um, scar placement is also something you can discuss with your breast surgeon. You know, we really want them to get the cancer out and do it safely and get clear margins, but sometimes they can camouflage scars in certain areas or work with the plastic surgeon to do that. Um, shifting gears, if you're gonna have a mastectomy, what are your reconstructive options? That spectrum is quite large and it goes anywhere from an aesthetic flat closure to complex microsurgical tissue transfer. Aesthetic flat closure is utilizing um, tissue rearrangement techniques and scar patterns to help lay the scar flat against your chest um, and avoid what we call dog ears or standing cutaneous deformities where you have peaks of the skin incision and try and contour it to your chest um, as well as possible. Uh, a lot of breast surgeons perform aesthetic flat closures too. It doesn't necessarily have to be a plastic surgeon. Um, a lot of women will opt for implant-based reconstruction. Under that umbrella, you can get a tissue expander or go direct to implant, and that can either be placed above the muscle or below the muscle. And I could talk to you for an hour about each of those options, but just know that there are options and there are pros and cons to each. And there are generally reasons why a team may offer you one over the other. Um, and of course, you also wanna have a conversation with your breast surgeon on the different types of mastectomies, because that can also play a role into the type of reconstruction you have. Are we preserving skin? Are we gonna also preserve the nipple? And that can then influence the plastic surgeon's decision on whether we are going direct to implant or whether we really need to start with a tissue expander. Um, last but not least, and full disclosure, my personal favorite is microsurgical breast reconstruction. And that's the use of your own body tissue as a transplant in your own body to the chest to reconstruct a breast. The reason it's called microsurgery is under a microscope, we sew the arteries and the veins together to help bring blood flow. Flaps are not grafts and they are not fat grafting. They're different. Because we're bringing the vessels with it and we're connecting them to the blood vessels in your chest, this fat now has blood flow. It's, it's actively vascularized, we say, as opposed to fat grafting, which is where we liposuction and we inject fat and we expect your body to grow blood vessels around it, but it doesn't bring blood with it naturally. Um, Generally speaking, we want to offer patients the whole spectrum of options, but there are certain situations where one might be a better option than the other. Generally speaking, if you are going to have radiation, implants have a higher complication rate long term and over time with radiation than flaps do. So if you know that you've had radiation in the past, like a lumpectomy and radiation, and now you need a mastectomy, or say you're getting a mastectomy and you know that you're going to need radiation after your mastectomy, make sure that you have a discussion with your plastic surgeon about the pros and cons of both implants and tissue expanders versus flaps in your specific case. Um, if I get a lot of um, patients who say, hey, I still plan on having kids. Is it okay if I have a deep flap? Having a deep flap does not prevent you from getting pregnant. It will no, in no way complicate your pregnancy. But one of the silver linings of a well-done deep flap is that you get um, something close to a tummy tuck from it. So if you uh, think that you would benefit more from that after having kids, that's one reason I would say maybe hold off and do the implant reconstruction first. Um, as with all of our specialties, and I think actually what's so incredible about breast cancer treatment is that we've gotten so... Um, niche that we can really individualize the plan to each patient, their type of cancer, their goals. And so my general advice is, I know a convention you're meeting with so many different doctors and they each have something to say. Um, bring someone with you to your appointment, someone who can help take notes um, and help you remember your questions. I always say like if you have a phone with a notes section and something pops in your mind um, in the middle of the day or the middle of the night, write down in your notes section and make sure you collect those questions so you can go back and ask your doctor and um, know your options. So if you feel off about it, if you feel like, oh, is this, I don't really feel good about this or is this really what I want to do? feel free to go back to your doctors and ask the questions so that you feel comfortable moving forward with your treatment. That's what I got. Thank you. You know, I think that we can all kind of, you know, echo why we're here and why we're doing this. And that's so that all of you guys listening can add, better advocate for yourself. Um, we may not be your doctors, may not be part of your team, but we hope that we can kind of arm you with the information that you need then to go back to your medical team and ask and ask again and get a second opinion and get a third opinion if you need to, to make sure that you feel comfortable. Um, you know, I don't care if you ask the same question multiple times. Um, you know, it's really important to know why you're doing what you're doing. So I think it makes you more of a partner in your, in your, you know, in your own medical care. 
Um, and so there's a lot of questions in the chat. So I think we'll just kind of jump right into them. I'll start sharing them. I'm not going to go in any particular order. So um, just I'm going to really pick random ones. Okay, here's one. Um, this one is for Divya still feeling numb after and I'm just going to read it. Um, still feeling numb two years after double mastectomy with direct to implant reconstruction. Um, any procedure available to improve numbness or regain sensation? I think sure. that's a common thing that comes up. Yes. So neurotization surgery, we call it, um, is the ability to restore some sensation to the skin of the breast and the nipple and the areola. There exists no procedure today that can fully restore 100% of your sensation. Generally speaking, our goal is to restore what we call protective sensation, meaning you feel heat, you feel cold, and that if you're wearing clothes or something brushes up against you, you can feel it. Those operations are best done with the best results at the time of mastectomy because the nerves are alive and are willing to accept a connection to them. And there's so many different ways that we can do it. Um, the further out you are from surgery, the more difficult it is to do. Generally speaking, if you remove the implant and you restore it with natural tissue reconstruction, there does tend to be some ingrowth of blood vessels and um, peripheral nerves that you can get a little bit of improved sensation, but it's not guaranteed. There are neurotization procedures where we can use a nerve graft, either from your own body or we borrow a nerve graft, and we connect the nerves um, that are under your nipple and areola to other nerves in your body and kind of trick your brain into redirecting those signals. The further out you are, though, from your mastectomy, the chances of sex success with those operations are quite low. And I would say greater than 9 to 12 months out from surgery. I'm not sure that where we stand today with the research and the technical ability can provide um, sufficient re-innervation. There was just a question in the chat about why implants are so, um, oh, sorry, why expanders are so uncomfortable. Um, so expanders serve a very specific purpose. They hold a space and they help us wait for the skin to recover from the mastectomy before we put it on tension or we expand it. And that's one of the main reasons a plastic surgeon may prefer to do an expander over direct to implant. Because as you remove the breast, or I say take the pillow out of the pillowcase, you're really removing a lot of the blood flow to the skin or the pillowcase with it. So you want to give that skin a chance to recover, to redirect the blood flow. And so expanders, first of all, they got to stay put. So they're sutured into your chest wall as opposed to implants. Implants are not sutured to your body. Number two, they have a metal back plate. And that metal back plate allows us to puncture the expander repeatedly to put in fluid and expand it without leaking all over your body or, or um, causing a puncture that would then lose the volume or lose the expansion. So that's why they're so uncomfortable and hopefully a little bit also of like why we use them. I know they're uncomfortable. Haven't met a patient who loved their expanders yet, but sort of a necessary evil to allow us in certain situations to really safely provide you the best reconstructive outcome. Okay. Um, here we go. Um, all right. We'll do this one here. Um, what is the best surveillance, in your opinion, for a patient with triple negative breast cancer, NED after a double mastectomy, multiple genetic mutations, BRCA1, PMS2? So I think when we think about surveillance, um, we want to think about surveillance both locally, um, thinking about what we need to image for the breast, and then kind of through, you know blood work and um, any imaging for the whole body. So if someone has a bilateral mastectomy, there is no routine surveillance because there's no more breast tissue remaining. Um, and I know the other experts can speak to this, but I know if you have um, silicone implants, we do recommend an MRI about five years just to evaluate for any silent implant rupture that may happen. Um, sorry, my, my four-year-old's kind of next to me here. Um, and then in terms of um, for kind of through, if you did not have a mastectomy, let's say you had a lumpectomy, you're going to work with your breast surgeon to figure out the appropriate imaging for you. Um, in terms of systemic imaging, now typically the standard has always been that if you don't have any symptoms, so let's say you don't have any, anything new, let's say cough or, you know, shortness of breath or bone pain, that we weren't doing imaging. Based on the 1980s, when all they had for imaging was ultrasound and x-ray. And so we've been using those results for the last three decades to tell people we don't need imaging, which 
is not great. And so there was a new study just published um, recently. They, what they did was, and I have a video on it in more detail, but basically they looked to see in people who recurred whether or not their recurrence was picked up by just they had symptoms and they were scanned or their um, recurrence was picked up by imaging for some other reason. Maybe they were getting a scan for some other surgery and things like that. And they found that in HER2 positive and in triple negative who were stage two or stage three at the time of their diagnosis, that picking, um, doing routine imaging without symptoms, just for some, you know, surveillance did have a little bit of a benefit. So what has that's still not standard. I can tell you what I'm doing in my practice is I'm sharing that study with patients. I'm talking to them about the risks and benefits of screening imaging. The, you know, it's not to say it can damage your kidneys, contrast exposure, radiation exposure. Um, and some people have chosen to do it and other people have chosen not to do it. So I think, you know, it's a really, an, it's a conversation. The last thing I'll say is that we're not ready for this yet, but it's coming, is using circulating tumor DNA to look for recurrence. And so all of our cells in our body make DNA. They shut that into the bloodstream. We can pick that up. So can cancer cells. So you can use testing through companies like Gardent or Signaterra to look for any cancer cells in the blood. Now, the challenge is, well, what do you do with it if you find it? Um, but we are starting to use it. I'm personally starting to use it a little bit more in my practice. And we need more research to tell us exactly how we're going to be using it. But I guarantee you in five years, things are going to look very, very different. So that's a long answer. Um, let's see what else we have here. Um, okay, here's a radiation question. Oh, I wouldn't, wouldn't let me share it, but I'll read it. Is it true that literature suggesting radiation more if lymph nodes are positive? versus an axillary lymph node dissection as outcomes are the same and reduction of lymphedema. So basically radiation versus lymph node dissection. Yeah, so if, you know, yeah, kind of an individualized question, but we generally try if we know we're gonna be offering radiation after surgery um, and um, we know historically if we have to give radiation on top of an axillary lymph node dissection that the lymphedema risks are significantly elevated. Um, so we have data you know, showing that we can oftentimes give radiation to the axillary lymph node region um, instead of proceeding with a full axillary lymph node dissection after essential lymph node biopsy. Um, so you know, it's a little bit individualized on a case-by-case -case basis, but it is an option that should be discussed, um, you know, with the treating team. Can I add something? Um, we do that pretty often in my practice, just because once you've seen a lymphedema, you just don't want to see it again. And we do everything possible to avoid doing a full axillary node dissection. So um, again, depending on how many nodes, if it's uh, one or two nodes, then yes, radiation, instead of axillary node dissection. But if we take out five lymph nodes and all five were positive and it's a large number of tumor deposits, that kind of makes me lean more towards a completion axillary node dissection in addition to the radiation. So yes, it's, it definitely should be individualized, but uh, we are doing it more and more. And I'd like to just throw in there, there's a lot of um, new research and um, surgical options that are coming out for surgical management of, of lymphedema as well. Um, mm -hmm. uh, one of the subspecialties of microsurgery is lymphedema surgery. And again, could be another whole lecture unto itself. But my general recommendation is if you think you are developing lymphedema, um, let your therapist know early, see if you can get plugged in with a certified lymphatic therapist and seek out a microsurgeon who does lymphedema surgery um, that's closest to you because the earlier we can uh, see you, the surgical options work best for early stages lymphedema. We have options for late stage lymphedema, but they don't have the same effect or efficacy that some of the um, earlier stage operations do. And let me, can I ask a question to you guys? in terms of lymphedema and rehab? And do you ask patients to get, you know, let's say they are having 10 lymph nodes removed and radiation on top of that, kind of what's your recommendation for when they should get rehab, prehab, you know, all of that? So I'm glad you used the term prehab because that's what we do uh, exclusively. Every patient that would um, 
that would go through any type of axillary surgery, node dissection, sentinel node biopsy, automatically gets plugged into the physical therapist for prehab. So we do the arm measurements, we do the exercises, et cetera, because uh, like you stated earlier, the sooner you can get to lymphedema, the better the outcome is. So when you wait until it's too late and they've developed stage three, four lymphedema, it's going to be so much harder to treat. Yeah, I think um, one of the mis misconceptions I hear a lot is I'm so worried I'm going to get lymphedema. So I just I've just been holding my arm here. I don't use this arm. Don't worry, I'm not going to get lymphedema. Mm. And I always say, no, 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 it's the opposite, actually. Um, low weight, but repetitive exercise has been shown to be really helpful with lymphedema. So um, don't protect that arm. Obviously, you want to heal from surgery and follow your surgeon's directions. But actually moving that arm, keeping the blood and lymph flowing um, is is the best thing that you can do as you go through your treatments and after. And let's actually, let's ask this question too. What about, I heard something someone was posting about not doing push-ups after implants. And can we talk about what you can do upper body wise, both after breast surgery and after reconstruction and radiation? Yeah. Um, Generally speaking, if you have under the muscle reconstruction, your pec muscle is going to be activated with almost anything you do. Opening the car door, the refrigerator, picking something up, you activate your pec muscle. So, and the more you move your muscle, you then move or shift the position of the implant because it's partially under the muscle. Um, I think it's really hard to tell women not to activate a major muscle group or a muscle in their body. Um, so I would say... My per and every surgeon's different. I personally say, live your life, do what you need to do. Once you get the clear from your doctors that you are healed. So if you're getting radiation, make sure your radiation doctor feels comfortable. Make sure your plastics doctor, make whoever it is that's managing your treatments, make sure they've all given you the green light. But then I say, you know, you should live your best life. And if you find it quality of life prohibitive, if your reconstruction is inhibiting or prohibiting your quality of life, there are other options. You can go above the muscle. You can remove the implant and get a flap. But just make sure you, you ask, I think just doing exactly what you said, just ask about it. Ask those questions and have a plan up front um, and understand the risks and benefits of, of each option. And I, I, I agree with what you said 100%. And anyone that follows me know that I'm a huge, huge um, <laughs> exercise freak. <laughs> so I tell all my patients to exercise. I mean, it's important for their recovery. I've mm -hmm. had women that are golfers, women that are tennis players, I get back to it within a week, two weeks. And I think the sooner you get back into exercise, the better for your overall recovery. And also, we know that it's important for risk reduction for breast cancer re uh, recovery. Mm -hmm. So it's just important to live your best life. Exercise, mm -hmm. please. Yeah, I can do want to add, um, and maybe you can comment on it. There are, you know, like post mastectomy exercises that you can easily find on the internet um, and just, you know, follow the instructions. Like I know Sloan Kettering has one they put out, I'm sure many other centers. Um, so that information is freely available on the internet and you can do those exercises at home. And I'll share with you a study that was published about maybe a year ago now, and it looked at people who were active and people who were sedentary. So not even like that formal kind of 30 minutes exercise, but just moving throughout the day. And people who are sedentary have a six times higher risk, um, higher rate of dying from breast cancer compared to people who are not active. So this is as simple as setting an alarm on your phone or on your watch to get up and like jump up and down five times and sit back down. So just constantly kind of moving throughout the day um, is really, really important, even if you're not getting that formal exercise, but we do want you to get your heart rate up in some, in some way. Uh, all right. So let's see here and try to vary some of the questions. A lot of them are on implants and deep flap. Um, here, this one I think is- You should follow all of us because yeah. all of us have a million videos of everything we just talked about in specific detail. So follow everyone, all the doctors on here, because each of us has, I've, all of our pages are filled with information for you guys. So you can be knowledgeable and equip yourselves with the right questions to ask. Exactly. Um, okay. When do neoadjuvant versus adjuvant? So 
basically, you know, I think the way to think about this, if we have a lymph node positive cancer, typically we are always going to consider neoadjuvant chemo. And the goal with neoadjuvant chemo is number one, to try to shrink the cancer to make the surgeon's life um, a little bit easier so that you can have a better cosmetic result. Um, hopefully take out less lymph nodes, not have that risk of lymphedema. But in HER2 positive and triple negative breast cancer, actually doing neoadjuvant chemotherapy, trying to shrink it or achieve that pathologic complete response, which is all of this um, cancer is gone at the time of surgery, can impact your outcomes. And it impacts your outcomes because then we can pivot. Let's say you don't have a pathologic complete response. We can change the therapy. We can add different treatment. So we really try to do neoadjuvant. I am a huge fan of neoadjuvant chemo because I think it gives you a lot of information. You can see how someone responds to treatment. Does their tumor shrink? Does it not? You know, is it, if it shrinks, that's good. But if it doesn't, like, okay, what do we need to change? You know, when you take it out and then give chemo, your everything's out, which is great, but you don't have a good way to assess um, response. All right, let's see what else we have here. While um, you look at question, um, I I want to say I love neoadjuvant chemo for my patients, especially the younger patients who are just so overwhelmed with all the information that we give them upfront. And they don't know if they should have uh, breast conservation or mastectomy. I think chemo gives them a little time to breathe, a little time to think and make that decision. Mm -hmm. So for, you know, our triple negative breast cancers that are coming and they're young and they're afraid, most of the time they're like, just take both breasts. And that's not, that's not necessarily the best decision at that time because they're making such a rash decision with all the stress and information that they have. So if you give them a little bit of time to think, it may be a different decision. So that's part of why as a surgeon, I love doing chemo first. I think that's a really good point. I think I've, I often find that people kind of change their thought process and also with reconstruction, right? What they want exactly. yeah. um, and you have time to think. and. Um, so I think that's really important. So let's take a couple more questions and then we'll wrap it up. So this one is implants after deep flap. Is there a better success rate even after the radiation being there's tissue surrounding the implant? Generally speaking, the um, complications that happen with implants go up as the size of the implant goes up. So a 600 cc implant is more likely to have complications than a 200 cc implant. If you've been able to restore at least part of the breast volume with a flap, then you presumably need a smaller implant to reconstruct it. That said, I would still highly suggest just doing another flap from somewhere else to get that volume because any implant is going to have some degree of issue with history of radiation. It may be very manageable, just like mild scar tissue, but it can become something a lot more bothersome than that. So it's possible, but I don't know that the studies have been done that shows the risk is entirely diffused because you have a flap. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly. We're lacking data in this space, in this, you know, reconstruction post-radiation space. But I think like the, I guess, lower level data that we have somewhat suggests that patients do better after a deep flap than they would with the two-stage, you know, expander implant post-radiation. Um, so I think we, we've got a ton of questions here. I mean, I think they're all kind of along the same vein. Um, but as Devay said, you know, follow all of us because each of us have pages that are dedicated just to what we do. And they have a ton of detail, a ton of information. Um, and then let me just say, I think there was one other question here that I thought was um, interesting. Um, this one's for you, Amanda, about some patients given radiation twice per day versus once per day, kind of in, in talking about inflammatory breast cancer, but maybe that's more applicable for other things too. Um, so inflammatory breast cancer is kind of a specific case. Um, and so there is a treatment regimen um, that is twice daily treatments that some centers do. Um, it's, and it's been shown to have good outcomes. Um, other centers don't use that regimen, but it is a common thing um, that we see done. Um, the only other time you would have twice daily radiation or yeah, twice daily radiation um, would be in the partial breast setting. 
um, and some older partial breast studies, they were doing radiation twice a day, but the most common is once a day, um, daily radiation treatments. Thank you. I know Robin is hiding there somewhere in the background. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to hop off and she can come back on if she has anything else to add. I can. I'll, I'll hop off. Thank you, guys. I'll be in the comment section, too, if anyone has questions. Okay. Um, while we're waiting for Robin to join, let me add her. So someone says, um, where do we find specific page info? So what I would do is, let me just add Robin here. Hold on. Um, is follow all of us. Um, so just click if, you know, even if you click on just one of ours, we all have this graphic and this video posted in our profiles. Um, so just click on and just literally follow all five of us because we all post different things and, you know, much more nuanced than what we can get in, in an hour here. Robin, anything to add before we wrap up? You know, I think a lot of, a common question I get asked a lot is when do you decide to um, get an MRI? Um, and so I guess Dr. Javita, I think maybe that's one for you okay. or, or, or it's Punsky, but. Okay. So, um, when do I decide to get an MRI? I do MRIs for two reasons. One for, um, women who have breast cancer and also do them in women who don't have breast cancer, who are, who are at a high risk. Mm -hmm. So for the high-risk patients, um, those are women that we don't want to just come in once a year for a mammogram because their risk is so high. So we want to add the MRI in between. So I'll do every six months alternating mammography and breast MRI. So that's one way to use that. The second reason in the cancer uh, scenario is if someone's diagnosed with a new cancer and we want to further assess the breast, uh, not just the cancer side, but the uh, non-cancer side, to make sure there's nothing else out of the ordinary that may have been missed on mammography because uh, breast MRIs, and you can speak to this a little bit more, breast MRIs are just more sensitive than mammograms. So for surgical planning, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, I think that, um, I don't know, some surgeons are less... Um, open to ordering MRI because it does increase your rate of mastectomy. Oftentimes, like you said, um, it's way more sensitive. So we'll see things on the MRI that may or may not be cancer. A lot of times we don't know, but once we've ordered that test and we kind of have to find out. Um, and the only way to really do that is by doing an MRI biopsy if we see something. Um, so, but it is important because the worst thing you could do is go to lumpectomy and keep having positive margins, positive margins. Um, and if we had an MRI, we might have seen other areas, um, you know, preoperatively, which would have led you kind of to mastectomy or additional biopsies. And somebody asked in the comments, and this is a great question, why don't MRIs replace mammograms for all? So um, MRIs cannot detect calcifications, which are often the earliest sign of cancer. So um, you wouldn't be able to find DCIS or um, some non-invasive cancers without mammography. So it really, uh, mammography is the gold standard for screening. And then you could certainly add supplemental ultrasound or MRI, depending on your risk factors um, and also your breast density, which we will we'll skip that whole topic. But yeah, they do play an important adjuvant role. Thank you. So, I mean, I think as everyone can tell, there are a ton of topics that we did not cover. Um, we didn't really get into breast cancer screening, risk assessment, breast density, which has been, you know, huge and in the news recently, um, as well as a lot of the nuances about certain treatment aspects. But, you know, we wanted to come on here and just, you know, it, it's into talk. And one of the things I personally believe in that Breast Cancer Awareness Month and really throughout the year is being an advocate and the way you can be your best advocate is by education. And so hopefully you guys found this helpful. Um, it is going to be saved so you can rewatch it and um, hopefully we'll put it out at some podcast episodes as well. So stay tuned for that. All right. Thank All you, right. everyone. I hope you found this helpful. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, everyone. And thank you. Available to answer questions. So send us yes. questions. Yeah, feel free to reach out to any of us in DMs or on our on our posts, and um, we're happy to connect. Take care. Bye. Have a good night. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye.
Thank you all for listening to this conversation. I loved talking to these powerful women about the work that they do and how we work together to take care of patients and breast cancer treatment truly is multidisciplinary. And I I think I'm hopeful that you got that perspective by listening to our conversation. I'm going to tag all of their accounts um, on my posts about this episode as well as on the show notes. So check them out. Make sure that you follow each and every one of them because all of them provide just such wonderful educational information that you can use to better advocate for your health. You can find me at Dr. Toplinski on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, you name it. I'm there uh, sharing and educating. If you have a moment to leave a rating and review for the Interlude podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, it helps me so much because it allows this episode and this show to be delivered to more listeners. And that's how we can grow and continue to bring you wonderful content. For those of you who don't know, I also recently launched a Patreon community, which includes bonus content, bonus episodes of the podcast and and some really cool stuff as well. So if you go to patreon.com slash Dr. Duplinski, you can support me and find some wonderful information there as well. Thank you all again for listening, and I will see all of you soon.